Hey, it's Red from Indianapolis. I'm Derek from Carmel, Indiana. Hi, this is George from San Francisco. The Sound of Young America is an independent production. Supported by listeners like, well, me. If you'd like to support the show like I did, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. Uh, My guest on the show is one of the most accomplished character actors in America. His first film role was in 1977 in the film version of Miguel Pinheiro's Short Eyes. He did an episode of Miami Vice in the mid-80s, and from there on, he's been seen in literally dozens of films, including Q&A, Carlito's Way, uh, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Traffic, um, just about every fourth movie that you see in a movie theater has Luis Guzman in it. Now he's one of the stars of the new HBO series, How to Make It in America, uh, in which he plays an older hustler type just out of prison who's, among other things, just bought the distributorship for a line of energy drinks. Yo, you ever tried this Rasta Monster stuff here? No, sir. Yeah, man, I just bought the exclusive tri-state area distribution rights for this. Jamaicans make it. You know, they put some kind of nutrients in there. One drink of this shit, you'd be fucking all night. Ooh, ooh yeah. White kids are going to love this stuff, man, right? Hell yeah. Yo, grab a cup. Grab a cup. Here you go. Ready? One for you. One for you. Do not have to break my cousin's arm. Go ahead. Go for it. All right, take mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, yeah, baby. Something. Luis Guzman, welcome to the Sound of Young America. Hey, brother, how you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, so I, I had this conversation. Uh, I called HBO because I, I've always wanted to have you on the show, and uh, I saw that you were in the cast of, of this new series. I thought, you know, uh, maybe he's available. So I called HBO, and they said, yeah, sure. And I said, well, wh- where is he, New York or L.A.? Because I could set him up in, in WNYC in New York if I have to. And they said, he lives in Vermont. So I called um, Vermont Public Radio, and I told them where they told me you live. And the guy at Vermont Public Radio says, wow, that's really the middle of nowhere. (laughs) And uh, I feel like if the guy from Vermont Public Radio, who's used to distant points in Vermont, says that it's the middle of nowhere, you really must live in the middle of nowhere. So tell me about where you live. I live in the middle of the woods where nobody can find me. And uh, no, I I I I, uh, I just finished building a house up in uh, Peachum, Vermont, and uh, it's beautiful up there. Um, it, it, it is the middle of the woods, but uh, you know it's you're close to nature and a lot of fresh air, and and um, kind of gets me away from the rat race. When did you move to Vermont? Uh, I moved to Vermont, I say now, 15 years ago. I bought my first place up here 19 years ago, but I moved up here permanently, I say, about 15 years ago. So I, I'm doing the math in, in my head here. That was that was very early in your um, in your acting career. Yeah. Um, what made you think, as someone who was who was pursuing acting as a career, that? Um, it would be a good idea to hole up in the woods in Vermont. Well, you know, 
Um, I grew up in New York City on the Lower East Side, and uh, I was involved in a lot of the community activities and pretty much being a community activist. And, um, you know, when I got into this business, I didn't know where it was going to lead, but I said one thing, you know, I've been here for a while and I love it, but I want to conserve myself. I want to breathe fresh air. I want a good place to raise my children. And kind of that was my decision as far as coming up to Vermont. And uh, it's beautiful up here. It really is. Let's talk a little bit about um, your early career. And in fact, let's go before your early career. Um, I, I know you were born in Puerto Rico and you grew up in New York. When did you move to New York? Do you remember living in Puerto Rico? Uh, no, I, I got to tell you, I think I was maybe 15 minutes old and my mother put me on a plane. <laughs> Literally. No, my mom had every intention of uh, coming to New York. It was during that time that there was like this mass exodus of Puerto Ricans uh, coming into the States to work down in the garment district. And uh, when my mother first came to New York, she came here as a single parent. Uh, she was but 17 years old at the, at the time. And we lived in the Bronx for a little bit, and then we moved down to Chelsea, and from Chelsea to the West Village, and from the West Village to the Lower East Side. You grew up with a, with a stepfather in the house too, right? Yeah, I grew up with my, my, my stepdad, Benjamin. Yeah, he pretty much raised me. Um, he he was a he was a TV repairman. He still is, and um, we were the first people on the block to have a color TV back in the '60s. That's pretty cool. That was awesome. <laughs> it, 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 did you think it was cool when you were a kid uh, that that sort of war? I was thinking about it as I as I read that your stepfather was a TV repairman, and thinking about. When I was a kid, the absolute coolest thing in the world to me was like all the parts of a piece of electronics, you know, spread out on the ground. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I tell you what, you know, I, I, uh, we had like seven TVs in a in a in a two bedroom apartment. <laughs> okay, and uh, it was kind of cool watching the tubes in the back of the TV light up and warm up because, you know, back then when you turned on the TV, you had to wait a minute for it to warm up, you know. And then there was this this thing that you had to turn the dial just to change the channel. And once and once that got worn out, you had to use some pliers to change it. That's how far back I go. I'm I'm only 28, and, and uh, I distinctly remember my father's, I think maybe it was maybe a 12-inch black and white TV. Mm-hmm. It had broken off knobs that had a pair of pliers on top of it. There you go. <laughs> we come from the same world. Um, uh, so you grew up in, as you mentioned, this world where there had been this huge influx of Puerto Rican immigrants to um, this part of New York City that led to a, a huge and powerful um, art scene and community did you at what point did you start to see the the arts as part of your um you know part of your world and and part of your community well i i definitely saw it as part of my community because when my family moved to the lower east side i was in high school and um we um i i hooked up with some of my somebody that i met in school 
um, my dear friend to this day, his name is uh, Eddie Conde Perez, and uh, he introduced me to, you know, people that used to do street theater, but they were also community activists. And um, at, at a certain point, uh, we started hanging out at a place called the New York Poets Cafe, um, which, you know, it, 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 it was a great spot because there were people there like uh, Miguel Piñero, Miguel Algarín, Lucky Sin Fuego, you know, uh, T.C. Garcia, Bimbo Rivas, uh, Alan Ginsberg, Amiri Baraka. And poetically, you know, that was like kind of my early introduction into, okay, all right, cool. This is poetry. This is that world. This is the message that it sends out. It was like, it was like before there was rap, there was that poetry. That's an amazing thing to see. I mean, that list of names is like a a pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty spectacular one. Oh yeah, and and you know what? As a kid growing up, you know these were these these were just cats that would come by and take the stage and take the mic and and spread their message and you know recite their poetry and stuff like that. And we were hanging out and we had no clue. You know, we had no clue, but. We kind of knew we wanted something special because there was like, you know, different kinds of people that would come down. And we were also part of the housing movement down there on the Lower East Side because um, uh, back then in the mid-70s, you know, the Lower East Side looked like a place that got hit by, by, by you know, it, it looked like uh, it got hit by a nuclear bomb. You know, all these burnt-out buildings, empty lots, abandoned cars, you know. It was heroin and cocaine all over the place and junkies. And in the midst of all that, we had these poets, we had these musicians, we had these street theater people, we had these community activists, you know. And we were about trying to save this neighborhood for the few people that was left. Now, you look uh, 40 years later... And you, you know, you can't afford a place in the, on the Lower East Side anymore. It's been so gentrified. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Luis Guzman, is one of the most successful character actors in America. His first role was in the 1976 film adaptation of Short Eyes. At the time, he was still working as a social worker in New York's Lower East Side. You were doing community theater, as you mentioned, in a, in a sort of activist capacity. Did you think of yourself as an actor when you were, um, you know, in your 20s? You know, it, it was nothing more than a hobby to me. It was like if one of my buddies wrote something, I get a phone call. Hey, Lou, you want to play six, seven roles? I got six, seven roles you can play here. <laughs> you know, and we would perform at street festivals and at block parties. You know, um, that's how we would do it. And uh, um, but I never went to sleep saying, "Man, I really want to pursue this. I want to, I want to be, you know, I want to be a movie star or, or a big theater actor." It was a hobby. It was something that I had no, no, no clue about, because my I was pretty much fixed on trying to save the neighborhood and 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 battling drug dealers and developers and you know, it was like a multi faceted kind of urban warfare that we were going through down there. Did Short Eyes uh, change that for you at all? Well, you know, Short Eyes, when when 
when when Mikey Pinero had Short Eyed going, and when they put it together, the film, it was interesting because um, I was I I I I missed the phone call, and I didn't get the message from the person that answered the phone. <laughs> I don't I, I forgive them for that, but um, it was they they wanted to audition me back then for you know one of the characters, and because I never got that message, that role went to someone else and I ended up being a background player in there and you know what back in when we shot that movie I think it was 77 or something like that or I yeah I think I that know, sounds right 1977 around there we were we were making $65 a day back then and $65 a day back in those days that was like oh my goodness that's a lot of money and so I worked at the background playing short ice for six weeks, made 300 and change a week. I was making more than my father, you know, but it wasn't something that that uh, right after short ice, I said, oh, I'm going to pursue this because I had no clue. You know, I was a I was a 20, 21 year old kid who still didn't know really what he want, wanted to do with his life. But at that moment, I was just happy being quote unquote like a soldier in the neighborhood and was trying to bring about change and and uh and um you know making sure that that people got heat and hot water during the winter and that people and families weren't being burnt out by landlords who wanted to collect insurance and not provide services to people living in their tenements I remember that your first big sort of Hollywood role was on Miami Vice. Um, yeah, am I am I misremembering that Pinero was involved in that too? Yeah, well, well, here you know, Miami Vice is literally ten years after Short Eyes, and what happened was I was a, a social worker at the Henry Street Settlement, and I was working with young people. And what happened was some couple of my kids didn't show up. So I go out, and I'm beating the pavement looking for them. And I run across Miguel Pinero, and he says, hey. And I hadn't seen Mikey in, like, a few years. And uh, he said, hey, you know, I'm writing for this TV show. They're coming to New York. They're going to be looking for people. So he gave me a phone number. And he said, you know, call up, see if you could get a part. And I thought nothing of it. I called up. I went in. Three weeks later, after going through a casting director, producer, director, you know, three weeks later, I find out, well, you're co-starring on the season premiere of Miami Vice. <laughs> I had no clue what that meant, you know. And uh, I'll tell you right now, all I wanted to get out of it was enough money, buy me a used car, so I can drive to the beach on the weekends and not have to tra- take mass transit. And that was my only goal, Really? Because right after I shot that Miami Vice, I went back to work as a social worker in the neighborhood. You know, again, it was a hobby. You know, it was just something that for me, just something that happened by chance. And it was it was great. The first time in my life I flew first class. First time in my life that somebody put me up in a hotel. First time in my life that I was getting per diem. I had, like I said, I had no clue what I was doing. What changed for you that led you to stop thinking of acting as a hobby and start thinking of it as something that that you would be doing for for your life? 
Um, well, it, it was a few things that happened in my life. Um, I guess number one was that uh, I got burnt out pretty much being a social worker. You know, things became really bureaucratic. I always wanted to help young people, help themselves. Things got too bureaucratic, you know, and, um, you know, there, to me there were just people that wasn't, wasn't getting it, you know. And then uh, the second thing was that uh, my wife and I, we had lost our first son, and that took a lot out of me. And then I guess the third thing that happened was I had done a movie called Q&A, and it was directed by Sidney Lamont, a wonderful director. And I got to work on that movie with guys like Tim Hutton and Nick Nolte and Armand Asante and Charles S. Dutton, to name a few. And uh, it was at that point, you know, like I said, just going through being burnt out through the loss of my son through the, uh, my experience working on that movie that I kind of said, you know what, maybe I can do this for a living. And uh, that's kind of when I stepped out and I took it serious. One of the things about acting is that it can be um, it can be really punishing. the The work can be difficult, but it, it, getting the work can be really brutal. Um, in that you're you're constantly being turned down. Um, how did that How did that agree with your personality? Were you able to make the transition from you know, uh, your buddy calling you up and asking you to be in a show and, um, uh, to having to go in front of a casting director and then a producer and then a director and then, you know, whatever, a a bunch of other producers to get work. Well, you know, I always had this this attitude about myself and that is that if something doesn't work out the first time, there's got to be something better coming up next, you know. And I would go into auditions, and you got to understand, I had no, I didn't understand the business. I didn't understand that when I went in to read for casting director, that, um, you know, it, every session would end like this. Oh, man, you were great. Wow, that was fantastic. Unbelievable. Great choice, you know. Wow. And I would walk out of that room and I said, oh, man, I guess I got the part. <laughs> and then I had to learn the phone didn't ring. And it was like, well, they can't tell you. I had to learn, well, they can't tell you right there that, no, you're not right for it. Because then, you know, I don't know if they think somebody's going to go animalistic on them or something. <laughs> but that's what I had to learn early on. And so I, I guess after a while, my attitude became, well, you know what? If this didn't happen, it, ha- it didn't happen for a reason. But I'm, like I said, you know, I'm, I'm sure something better will come up. And pretty much that's really how it happened for me. But also I was the kind of guy that I would show up on a movie set. And, man, I wanted to learn so much. I wanted to give so much. You know, I wanted to ask the good questions. I wanted to watch. I want to ask the cameraman, hey, it's okay if I look through the lens just to see what you see? Or go next to the sound guy and say, hey, can I, can I borrow those headphones? Can I just listen to what they're doing? And kind of developing a rapport with people. You know, I mean, I wasn't, I, was, I wasn't there to see what I could get out of people. I was there to see what I, what I can be a part of, you know. And, and that's pretty much how I grew in the business. 
and I was very, very fortunate because I, man, I, 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 I got some really good material. I got hooked up with some great people, you know, and um, and uh, people would call me back. People would call me back. Hey, would you do this? Would you do that? And um, kind of building a foundation for myself. That's how that, that that's how I looked at it. We'll have more with Luis Guzman in just a minute. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Production of The Sound of Young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Clark Boyd here, host of the World's Technology Podcast. For four and a half years, I've worked in obscurity, overshadowed by the gadget junkies, the fanboys, the uber geeks. You see, people hate my podcast because, well, I don't talk about iPhones or any other sorts of gadgets and gizmos. In fact, it's the gadgets and gizmos that don't interest me. Now, the people around the world who use them to do cool things, that does interest me. Oh, and I also like bagpipes. Anyway, maybe all of that will interest you, too. Check out the World's Technology Podcast, brought to you by the BBC, Public Radio International, and WGBH Radio in Boston. Find out more at theworld.org slash technology. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program, Louis Guzman, is one of America's most successful character actors. His uh, many roles have included movies like uh, Short Eyes, Carlito's Way, uh, Boogie Nights, Traffic, The Lemony Snicket, and now he's one of the stars of the new HBO series, How to Make It in America. Your career was really, I think, launched by your part in Carlito's Way. Yeah, which is this movie that has this um, uh, incredible uh, cult following now, and it's like it, it, it was sort of like Scarface. It's it's a, like a crime drama that's that's almost um, almost operatic. I mean, like a lot of Brian De Palma stuff. Right. Tell me a little bit about uh, about how you got that part and and what it was like to to work on this movie that was so so bold. Um. Interesting. I got a phone call from my agent. Say, hey, you know, there's this movie. Um, it's um, starring Al Pacino. It's being directed by Brian De Palma, and it's like, you know, my heart started like racing right away. And I got so what's the role and stuff like that. They tell me what the role is, and um, I go, okay, cool. You know, so my my goal was to show up like that guy. You know, not to show up like Louis Guzman, but to show up like the role, the guy, his name was Pachanga. So in my closet, I had this like, this like old, old beat up leather jacket that one of my friends found in Tompkins Square Park and gave it to me. And I had never wore that jacket. And I put that jacket on with like a baby pink, you know, dress shirt. And I said, you know, I got to be this guy. And I went in there, and I went in there, and I read. And as I was reading for it, Brian De Palma starts cracking up. I was I was at a loss. You know, I said, oh, my God, he thinks I'm funny. I don't know if this is good, <laughs> you know. But I, 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 I got through it. And as I'm walking out, the casting director, her name is Bonnie Timmerman, um, she winks at me, and I walk out. 
And when I got home, uh, my answering machine was, uh, you know, the little light indicating that you have a message is going on and off. I uh, listened to the message at my agent telling me I got the part. I go, oh, my God, I can't believe this. I'm working next to my idol, Tony Montana, Serpico, you know, Dog Day Afternoon. You know, I didn't, you know, because I, I still felt I was pretty new to all this. Well, I got to tell you, my first table reading that we had for Calito's Way over at Kaufman Astoria, you know, there comes Al Pacino into the room. And I am like, oh, dude, this can't be happening, but it is. And I shake hands with Al Pacino. You ever shake hands with somebody that you idolize and your hand is cold and sweaty? Yeah, I certainly have. That was me that day. And it was interesting because when we were reading, you know, we're reading the whole script. We're having a table reading. And every time I read, Al would look over the table past me to Brian De Palma. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm, I'm like getting nervous because I said, oh man, Al, Al doesn't like what I'm doing. Al doesn't like what I'm doing. So I called one of my friends that night, and uh, I said, look, man, this is what I'm feeling. And my friend told me the best thing, and he said, Louis, you gotta understand something. You know this guy, Pachanga. You know this guy because you've grown up with people like this. And it was, it was the truth, you know. And I let go of my insecurities, and I just went for it. I had a great shoot. I learned so much, you know. And um, it was a great experience, and I got really great results and great reactions from people when they saw the movie and they saw my portrayal of this guy, Pachanga. I think I I first became aware of you as you— um, performed in this string of uh, uh, P.T. Anderson and Steven Soderbergh movies through the uh, mid-90s and, and into the early 2000s. Um, one of my favorite movies is, is The Limey, in which you played opposite uh, uh, Terrence Stamp. Terrence Stamp is on this revenge mission. It's a Steven Soderbergh movie. And... Um, you're sort of his you're sort of roped into it and um there's this amazing scene uh where you you and Terrence Stamp are in uh the villain of the film Peter Fonda's beautiful Hollywood mansion and you're out there on the edge of of this infinity pool and uh, I I'm going to play I want to play a little bit from that scene Blimey yeah, if you can afford a house like this, you buy a house like this, you know? What are we standing on? Trust. You know, you can see the sea out there if you can see it. Could you? That scene is just this perfect distillation of Los Angeles to me. Like these, like this, you're almost explaining Los Angeles to this total outsider in, in Terrence Stamp. It must have been amazing to be on this movie with these two like absolute icons um, in Terrence Stamp and Peter Fonda. Like just to be, just to stand next to next to them must have been. Oh yeah, bizarre. I mean, are you kidding me? I felt like. If, there, if if there's any truth to the saying, feeling like the new kid on the block, I was the new kid on the block, you know. And uh, 
I was absolutely thrilled and honored. I, you know, and you just kind of hanging out with these, what I consider these two iconic guys. You know, it was it was it was amazing. And and you know what? I gotta tell you, they were they were the most giving people. They were most level headed, really cool, really giving people. And I really appreciated that about them. One of the great things about your uh, performance in that movie is that you're um, you're really funny in it, and it's it's a role that is um, uh, it's a role where you know you you are a little bit of a heavy in the movie, but um, uh, you're also quite funny in a way that you're that you maybe didn't get a chance to be in. Um, you know, when you're playing like a, a Colombian drug dealer on Miami Vice. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you feel like you, you started to get to uh, assert the fact that, oh, like, uh, I, I can be funny, too. Like, I, I'm not just um, I, I'm not just, a, you know, dark skinned guy that beats people up. Um, you know, <clears throat> I really couldn't even tell you when that moment was. I mean, I don't. I don't know if it was Q&A. I don't know if it was Carlito way. I don't know if it was the limey. I don't know. I mean, it was just something that just kept coming. I mean, you know, my role in in Boogie Nights, Maurice T.T. Rodriguez, you know, this guy who just wants <laughs> to be in that porn world, for one, and, and kind of deal with his own insecurities, you know, to to my, my role in traffic and working with Don Cheeto and how we bounced off each other, you know. Or, you know, even my role, like, in, in anger management, you know? Um, just, or, I don't I don't know because I don't ever think of being funny. I just think of being whoever it is that I got to be at that moment. And, you know, when I get an opportunity to sit back and see it and give it a chuckle, I mean, if I could laugh at myself, that's a good thing. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Luis Guzman, has been an exceptionally successful character actor, not least because of his wonderful relationships with some of our time's greatest directors. One of those directors is P.T. Anderson. Here he is as a nervous game show contestant named Luis in a scene from Anderson's opus, Magnolia. That's my thing. Come on. I'm, I'm, I'm serious. I mean, come on, man. Milk and sports. Man, you never heard milk and sports, okay? Anything baseball, um, anything dealing with numbers when it comes to those, you know, uh, who broke whatever record, any kind of dairy product, any kind of dairy recipe, um, like goat, goat milk, goat cheese, goat, all that stuff. Wow. Check this out over here. So, um, look, guys, just work with me on that. Work with me. Excuse me. Can you do me low-fat milk, please? A couple of ice cubes. Yes. You had a really wonderful scene in uh, P.T. Anderson's Magnolia. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I remember when I first saw Magnolia, and it's it's such an overwhelming experience. I mean, it's such a huge rush of images and, and content and ideas. Um, and and I, can, I, can only, I can only imagine for you, having had this really small, specific role in it, um, what it must have been like to see the epic final product well let me tell you man paul thomas anderson to me is a very gifted gifted director writer you know and he's such an enthusiast of what he does and how well he puts it out there and then puts it up on the screen and and you know i mean you look at magnolia 
you look at Boogie Nights, you know, I also did Punch Drunk Love with him. And it's 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 amazing how well a guy like this could just put it out there like that, you know, and, and, and make it work. You know, um, he's just an amazing dude, really is. Do you remember when you saw that, you know, it's it's similar in a way to the Limey, which is another film which I can only imagine in the theaters looked very different than it, you know, may have felt when you were you know there on the set. It's such an aesthetic film and uh, so edited so artfully. Um, but Magnolia is so vast. Um, do you remember? Do you remember when you when you saw Magnolia for the first time? Yeah, um, when I saw it for the first time. Uh, I saw it in New York City, and um, I'm watching it, and I was pretty blown away by it. You know what, what Paul did. You know just the look, just how this movie was kind of pretty much. It was like a quilt, you know, and how well it flowed, you know. And um, I was thrown off by the frogs at the end, though. <laughs> I had Who to call. It? I had to call him up to Paul. Help me out with this here. You know, <laughs> I think it was something biblical or something like that. But um, it, it, you know, it, it, it's an amazing thing because, like I said, you know, here you are. You're working with this guy. First of all, at the table reading when we did the table reading for Magnolia, that was that was incredible because you know you're just listening to the words of a writer and how well that is. How, how well that flows, you know, and just the whole chemistry to his writing. And then, you know, here you are sitting at a, at a table with Tom Cruise and, and Julian Moore and John C. Riley, And, you know, I mean, the list goes on of people, you know, that, that, you know, were there. But then when you see the movie and how he put it together and how he constructed it and, you know, and how he puts it together, I mean, it's like, it's like making an incredible, beautiful quilt you know a masterpiece I, I should say it's the sound of young america i'm jesse thorne my guest luis guzman is one of the most successful character actors in america now he's one of the stars of the new hbo series how to make it in america um your character in how to make it in america is this um is this guy who's just back from jail and he's he's a. Uh, He's a hustler, a pretty successful hustler, not a super successful hustler. And um, I, I wonder if if you knew people like this growing up, people who people who who were maybe a, a little bit too old um, to be in the game, people who were um, who are a little bit like salty dogs. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, the I'll tell you what. My life and my work is my reference. You know, this guy that I portray in How to Make It in America, Renee, is a combination of a whole bunch of cats that I grew up with on the Lower East Side. You know, guys that will come up with an idea and have no clue how to go about it or no financial backing to make it happen. But some way, somehow, they persisted, they kept going, and if they were successful on one deal or 10 deals or 100 deals to a certain level, they made it happen. And um, 
you know, when I when I when I uh, portray this guy, those those are the the people that I think about most, you know. And uh, you know, life growing up on the Lower East Side was always a hustle, so it comes like a second nature to me. Um, there's this uh, uh, comedy writer named Dan Harmon who, who's been a guest on this show. He's got a show on um, NBC called Community, and over the course of this year, the first year of Community. Um, you have loomed larger and larger in this show as it's set at a community college. And in, in this community college, they have, um, in the plot line of the show now, erected a tribute statue to you. Um, were you, like, informed that you were going to be, uh, that you were going to be such a big part of this show before they, uh, before they made a likeness of you and, and erected it on the um, Los Angeles City College campus for, for purposes of this sitcom? Well, you know, I got a phone call about it, and I, I I had two feelings about it. I was very amused, and I was very honored. And um, I was saying, all right, man, that's that's not a bad thing at all. So I I welcome it. You know, I think it's amusing. It's, it, it's funny, but, you know, it's kind of... It's kind of somebody giving you your due, so to speak. You know, it's like it's like a, an admiration. So it's sort of like being a question on Jeopardy or something like that. Oh, I, I've been a question on Jeopardy. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but I know they called me up and say, "Hey, we're going to ask a question about you. Is that okay? As long <laughs> as it's a good question, go for it." Louise, thank you so much for taking all this time to be on the Sound of Young America. It, it was such a joy to have you. Thank you. Luis Guzman is one of the stars of the new HBO series, How to Make It in America. It airs Sunday nights on HBO. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music, and indeed all of our music, uh, provided to us by Dan Wally. You can visit us online at MaximumFun.org and email me directly, personally, at Jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. The show is edited by Nick White. Special thanks this week to Betty Smith at Vermont Public Radio, who recorded the Luis Guzman side of our Luis Guzman interview. Also, special thanks to my mom, I'm sitting in her second bedroom talking into a microphone right now. Mom, thanks for letting me use your house as a recording studio. That's when you probably don't hear much on public radio. We'll see you next time, right here on The Sound of Young America.